gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, he is, I think this is his third time on the podcast, at, at minimum his second. Um, he is, I, I want to be very clear, This I, I have nothing but high esteem for him, but it, it is also a very small field. He is my absolute favorite academic psychologist. Um, and uh, uh, formerly, uh, he was... Um, I think he was the chair of the psychology department at Yale. He was the Brooks and Suzanne. He is the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Yale. He is currently a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. Um, he's written some wonderful books, which longtime listeners know, uh, several of which are on the remnant bingo card. Um, so we won't have to get too deep in the weeds in um, uh, Just Babies, which is, I still think, one of the best books I've ever read on in the world of psychology. And also, um, I always have to point out to people, no babies were actually harmed in any of those experiments. Um, uh, I'm talking about, of course, Paul Bloom. Um, and he is the author of seven books, including his latest, Psych, the Story of the Human Mind. Paul, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks for having me back, John. Good to be here. So I haven't, I haven't dived into... Um, uh, this one yet, uh, but I will in part because even it, this is a topic that even if it wasn't written by you, I would probably want to read this book because I'm, I, I have a, I have a, I'm in a weird position. It seems while psychologists like you are, are entering a sort of a, a riot of humility about what you guys actually know or don't know. Um, I have moved off a lot of my old skepticism about psychology and I've become much more interested in it. Um, so what do we know about psychology? How, how, how confident are you that psychology, is it closer to a medical science or is it closer to a social science or is it way out in like uh, just uh, who the hell knows conjecture? Yeah, we're not, we're not physics. We're not, we're, not, um, we're, we're not physics, we're not chemistry, we're not biology. We're not at a stage where we have these thick textbooks with these you know, unquestionable findings that provide clear understandings of mysteries that people struggle over, where we're a young science, if we're a science, and a lot of our stuff is provisional. And as I talk about in the book, uh, we've been in somewhat of a crisis recently from all directions. We can talk a bit about that involving, some involving the politics of things, but also some involving um, failures of studies to replicate. So it's a good time to be humble. But my book isn't a humble book. My book uh, mentions the problems and I think has some humility where I think it's deserved, but also says psychology has discovered some really cool things, really cool, surprising, interesting, important things about the nature of consciousness, about the minds of babies, about memory, um, about bias, racial bias, about happiness, about mental illness. And I think there are, my book, I try to tell the story of, of discoveries we've made that are significant important and long-lasting and, and that people be excited to know about okay so i want to get to some of the cool things in a second but just to flesh this out for a second um i think most people certainly most of the listeners here know that there's a difference between psychology and psychiatry uh but um can you sort of explicate like the confidence level for psychology versus psychiatry um and 
are they growing farther apart or are they coming closer together? It's a good question. Uh, you know, psychology, as I talk about it, is the science of the mind, including every aspect of it, including study of mental illness. Psychiatry, uh, clinical psychology, is focused on treatment, making people better who are schizophrenic or depressed or, or, or anxious. And at its best, psychiatry and clinical psychology draw upon the, the science of psychology. It's not just somebody kind of who's, who's, who's good at talking and, and a warm person, although that goes a long way. But, but at its best, the treatments are informed by the science. But they're different things. Um, sometimes I used to, I used to when I'm in a, on an airplane or something, they ask me what I do. I tell them I'm a, I'm a psychologist. And then they start telling me about uh, why their kid uh, you know, never comes home at night or why they have these horrible, these horrible dreams about monkeys. And, and me being the enthusiast I am, I always try to give them life advice and explain <laughs> their dreams. But, but I don't know anything about that. Um, a friend of mine has a really nice response. She says, I'm a psychologist, but not the sort that helps people. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that's, that, that, that's my motto as well. I do research. I talk about research. Um, you know, we, we talk about successes and failures in psychology, I'll start off by sort of saying something which I think some people are going to like, which is clinical psychology, the study of mental illness, has been a part of the field which progress has been slow. There's been some very prestigious scholars, like the head of National Institutes of Health, say, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, we just haven't come up with much new. Therapies work. A lot of the drugs work erratically, sometimes for some people, it's hard to get a good match, but, but the anti-anxiety drugs, anti-psychotic drugs, anti-depression drugs are better than not taking them often. But it's not like if you went into a, a psychiatrist's office now, you'd get substantively different treatment than if you went 20 years ago. We're missing a discovery. Nothing, nothing amazing has happened. Some people say they're stuck just around the corner. You know, there's a lot of push for psychedelics. Like some of that sounds like, you know, hippie silliness, and I think there's a lot of hype, but it might be that that's going to make a huge difference. Um, but but clinical psychology study of mental illness is, is is slow to progress. So is um, it feels to me like sociology is in worse shape. Um, but is sociology is it fair to think of sociology as simply the plural of psychology? I think sociology is a different level of analysis. Um, it, it, it falls into a category that goes on with political science and history and in a different way, economics, where they're not so much interested in workings of individual heads, but in, in uh, forces that govern societies and societal change. I don't know enough about them to know that they're in crisis. A lot of the social sciences um, and humanities, like, uh, like history in particular, are in what I, don't, I can't speak intellectually whether they're in a crisis, but they're in a crisis regarding their status in universities, the number of students who enroll, the number of jobs that are available. It is a horrible time to be entering one of those fields just from a professional standpoint. Yeah, so I, I want to come back to that because I, I know you actually think literature is of more value sometimes than, than, than a lot of these social sciences and understanding people. So we can come back to that a little bit. All right, so what do we know about consciousness? Yeah. Um, we know a lot about consciousness. Um, we, we know a lot, and then there's some, one big thing we don't know. One thing that we know is that consciousness is a product of the brain. It is, it is a dualism, substance dualism, where consciousness is just an immaterial soul drifting around, connecting to the brain through some ephemeral connection, is as false as a theory can be. Um, we, uh, and, and, you know, you, you could see 
when people think about different things, different parts of the brain are activated in a predictable kind of way. Damage to the brain can damage your consciousness in various ways, including make, putting you in a coma, but also making you oblivious to certain things. Uh, there's every reason to believe that our mental life, including our conscious experience, is a product of our, of our brain. What we don't know is how. And I know a lot, of, I have a lot of friends who say, oh, I know how. And there's a lot of theories bouncing around. But my, my sense is that, like a lot of skeptics, like um, David Chalmers, who would say the hard problem of consciousness, how consciousness arises from a brain, is, is still a mystery. But we, know, so, but we know more than knowing about it's in the brain. I'll tell you something which has been exciting me recently, which is a lot of studies on differences in consciousness that often people are unaware of until it's brought to their mind. So take sensory experience. Uh, some people have synesthesia. Uh, where um, where the senses from one sense slop over to the other. So some people, when they read things, they taste or they see flashes of color. There's a Russian case study of a guy who couldn't read a newspaper over breakfast because it ruined the taste of his eggs. <laughs> on, the, on the other extreme are people, and what's cool about this is people in their 40s and 50s, they, they read a discussion of mental imagery, and then they go, wait, wait, I thought people were just joking. I thought it was like a metaphor. Are you saying you close your eyes, you have images in your head? <laughs> Some people don't. They just don't. Nothing. They close their eyes and it's just dark in there. Um, and there's, there's big differences. Some people have a voice in their head. I'm not talking about a schizophrenic voice in their head, just sort of a narrator, like, a, you know, like Ron Howard's voice in Arrested Development, just you know, going through life. And uh, other people, their head is silent as a tomb. Some people experience pain more intense than others and so on. So I find it very cool how different our conscious experience is. And I find that in a sort of sense, that's humbling. Because when I say, oh, Joan, I know exactly how you feel. Well, there's a million reasons why that's probably not true. All right, so the synesthesia thing, I've always kind of wondered about this. Like there's this funny bit in, in Big Bang Theory where Sheldon, you know, the super genius, is trying to explain how he spotted some pattern in a bunch of data so quickly. And he just says, well, you know how prime numbers smell like kerosene? <laughs> and I was like, well, no. Um, we do know that when one sense leaches over to another, that's a misfiring, right? They're, they are not picking up on some external reality that the rest of us are missing in any, in, in any circumstance, right? No, it's not like metaphysically prime numbers smell like kerosene and some people are just sharp enough to figure that out. Um, but, but the example is a great one because there used to be a lot of skepticism about synesthesia. It's these people who are just deranged or goofing around or lying or being metaphoric. But there's various demonstrations of kind of exactly that sort where if you're the kind of person who um, the number two looks bright orange to you and then we give a feel of numbers which has a two hidden in it. And for me, I just have to look one by one roll of numbers. It takes me a long time. For you, maybe, oh my God, there's an orange splotch. I see it. It just pops right out. And demonstrations like that have led people to conclude that synesthesia is a real, a real thing. I want to stay on the consciousness thing for just a second and, and how it maybe it'll lead into something else about what we know or don't know. Um, I remember, maybe it was you, maybe it was another um, psychologist on Econ Talk five, 10 years ago, who um, was where I first heard this thing. I've read about it since that like in some Asian societies, uh, they do these tests where you look at a giant, it's a giant poster of a school of fish shaped like a fish, right? 
and I think Jonathan Haidt writes about it in one of his books too. And um, it's part of this whole weird thing, white European, whatever advanced rich countries see things differently. West Western advanced countries see things differently. And just to, so listeners understand what I'm getting at. So it's a giant fish shaped. It's a, it's a giant school of fish shaped like a fish. And in some Asian societies, they don't see the individual fish. They see the one mega collective fish. And a lot of Western societies were more likely to see the individual fish. Um, what do we know about why those kinds of cultural differences exist? And do they extend to concepts like consciousness? Yeah. So, so one of the raps against psychology, which I think is, is, is fair enough, is that we, used to, we have an obsessive focus on American undergraduates. Uh, you know, sometimes occasional Canadian throw in a European one day, but, but um, somebody estimated that uh, you take an average psychology subject or 4,000 times more likely to be an American college freshman than somebody from India, China, or Africa. And you may think, well, that's okay, because our studies, oh, everything we find is going to be general, apply to everything. But it turns out not. It turns out for, there's all sorts of differences between weird societies, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies and the rest of the world. And some of them are kind of what you'd expect involving norms of politeness or respect, maybe styles and moral reasoning, who you're obligated to, how you think of yourself. But some of them people have argued extend more broadly. And, and there is the argument that there's a more general perception of the world, conscious experience difference that comes from collectivist versus individualist societies. I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about some of these findings. They're never that big. And they're always a matter of emphasis. So suppose it's true that in Japan, you focus more on the whole than the part. And, um, and in America, you focus more on the individual than the unit they're made of. We can easily flip back and forth, and so can they. So it is a matter of emphasis. I, I sometimes think cultural differences are real and powerful, but overblown. And what we miss is that in all sorts, so for instance, one big difference between weird societies where you and I are in, uh, and, and the rest of the world is that we focus on on individual ambition, maybe standing out is good, and and other societies focus more on the community, the family, where you stand in relationship to people. But we can easily enough and often do think of ourselves in terms of our family. We we could you know if you ask me I could say you know I'm the brother of Howard, the the, the son of Bernie, and it doesn't you know it doesn't sound weird to me. Um, and they can also think of their individual accomplishments and boast about them and so on. It's more a matter, I think, of emphasis than a total switch. In this way, I'm kind of a universalist, where I see our minds as fundamentally the same around the world, different emphasis. Um, okay, so I, I'm, I'm going to run through, like, a, if you got stuck next to me on a plane, these are the questions I would ask you, right? Um, it's like the professor in Gilligan's Island. I feel, I feel like, in this book, I feel like I have to know everything. Um, so one of the things that I, I, I've written a bunch about, I think about a lot, um, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly committed to, so is sort of people like Ross Douthat and some others is this idea that you can find in Chesterton, you can find Will Herberg, you can find in Eric Vogelin, uh, this idea that, um, we are what, what Herberg called homo religio, that we have an innate religious sense, um, and that when you take the uh, when 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 you remove the object of that religious instinct in the form of organized traditional religion 
you don't all of a sudden become quote unquote secular and science based. You just sort of divinize other things, um, and they you you find something else to shove into the the round hole of 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 religious instinct. Um, again, I, I don't think this is like an iron law of every individual. I don't think it is. I think it has limited explanatory value on a day to day basis. But I think it's also a thing. Um, what do we know? What 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 do what do psychologists think they know about religion and and humanity's capacity to be religious? So, to some extent, we there's good reason to believe that some propensity to a religion is is bred in the bone. It's just part of our natural uh, uh, structure, and that everywhere you look, society is separated by by many many years and many many miles. Societies will always be religious, and um, and. The religion, the natural way to religion is expressed in terms of ritual, in terms of special treatment for the dead, in terms of sort of things being sanctified, a difference between the, you know, a, a domain of the, of the profane and, and gods. I mean, the default, by the way, and I've, I've gotten arguments with, with a friend of mine, he says, isn't it wonderful that, that God has created us so much to believe in him? And my response is the natural default is polytheism. So, so, you know, so if, 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 there were, if he was a polytheist, he'd be on, 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 on better grounds. But the idea of a, of a single God is a relatively recent human invention. Um, uh, Robert Wright talks about this in Evolution of God. That, and even, and even in, 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 you know, in, the old, in, in the Old Testament, there's some reference to apparently other, God, other gods that ultimately get wiped out by the one true God. And, um, and so we're naturally religious in a sense. And um, there are now more and more secular societies and secular people. I tend to agree with the idea that sometimes this appetite leaches out in other ways. So you find places where they're explicitly atheistic, but they hold all sorts of spiritual beliefs and they have all sorts of, uh, of superstitions and rituals and taboos and so on. So there's, I think a lot of people would, who would, would rather die than say that they're religious have some of it turning on in their heads and it might show up in new age beliefs and hippie beliefs and so on. I think like a lot of these um, built-in propensities, including something which you've been very interested in, which is the us-them uh, distinction, this thing, our, our propensity to sort of think of ourselves as, as, an, as a critically important group opposed to other people, grounds of racism and sexism and all sorts of bias. I think you could say we start, there are ways to attenuate it, there are ways to, um, to, to shift it to more benign forms, like in, in the case of outgroup things in sports, is like a safe way of, 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 of waging war. I, I'm a little bit, I, I want to push back a bit or get your thoughts on this. I, I think a lot of people take the insight that we're naturally religious and then say, and then extend it maybe too much. So I've heard that wokeness is a religion. I've heard that, that science is a religion. I've heard that just about every human pursuit that people do, that other people don't like, get slapped on as a religion. They don't mean it in a nice way. And I think to some extent, it's not entirely untrue. Often human pursuits have religious-like properties, but I don't think they're full-blown religions in the sense that psychologists are interested in. Um, I, I, I'll push back on that a little bit. I mean, so I, I think one of the fun things about studying intellectual history is that when new ideas emerge, people can be really unsophisticated in how they express these distinctions. Um, and so if you go back and you look at like Auguste Comte, right, who was 
the guy, I think he coined the term sociology. He's the father of sociology. Um, he actually created what he called a religion of humanity where like there were, um, uh, saints, you know, Isaac Newton was one of the saints, right? And it was supposed to be the secular faith. Um, fun fact, Herbert Crowley, the founder of the new Republic, um, author of the promise of American life. And basically, which was basically the Bible of the progressive movement and the father of the progressive intellectual godfather of the progressive movement was literally baptized in Comp's religion of humanity. Um, they actually had a ritual at their townhouse. His mom was a famous journalist and his dad was an intellectual or something. And so anyway, you can go back and you can look at the way people talked about religion and, uh, myth. And so, uh, George Sorrell, who's like the father of syndicalism, which was inspired both fascism and communism and very important Italian, uh, intellectual very early on, he said, look, you know, the communist manifesto or Das Kapital really doesn't make a lot of sense as social science, but it's really useful as an organizing myth as what he called an apocalyptic text. And so I think that one of the things that I kind of look at is I think there are a lot of people, it's sort of like contemporary Scientologists don't know that L. Ron Hubbard actually said the real money is in creating a religion because they're actually bought in. I think there's a lot, and Michael Crichton's written about this. I agree with you, it can be overdone, but there's a lot of religion, uh, religious anatomy and architecture to environmental stuff. Um, uh, and some are honest about it. Some aren't honest about it. I actually have more respect for the people who are honest about it because my whole thing is I, 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 I'm much more inclined to take people seriously who know what their biases and their priors are than people who just think that they are being objective um, and empirical. Um, but, uh, so I, I, look, I agree with you. It can be overdone at the same time. Um, I think that there is this, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not going to lecture you about what, what human psychology is about, but I do believe there is this in, innate desire to provide some sort of transcendent meaning, some greater context, context than just, uh, mere materialism. And there are, I mean, the original socialists, social gospelers, communists, they all use this phrase about how they were going to usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Um, I just think there's a lot of stuff there that are tells about where they're really coming from. You know, you tell me why I'm wrong. It's not wrong. It's just that religion isn't of a piece. And so you're, you're entirely right about a couple of things. First thing, one could self-consciously say, let's have a new religion or let's make our, our new movement in the guise of religion. And it's not a dumb move. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard, probably did, did pretty well for himself. It's, it's, it's possible to do it if you, if, if you use the right techniques. What's more common, I think, is that movements, either self-consciously or just you know by the by, adopt things that are present in religion and present in other things. Um, I think it then becomes more like a religion when you talk about things like this belief in transcendent, particularly beliefs in saints, in characters with mystical powers and everything. You, you find this sometimes. It becomes less interesting, maybe, if what you mean is, well, we want to get people together with a common cause who think they're special and different from other people and doing something really important. It's true that that's what religions do, but, but doing that doesn't make you into a religion. No, I, so I, again, I, I'm, I'm not talking about like formal dogma and whatnot. I'm talking about the religious instinct, right? I mean, like... Um... We all have an instinct to commit violence, but as you say, it can be channeled into football, and so who gives a rat's ass, right? But I mean, this is something I noticed. I think it's now a much more bipartisan problem, but 
this is something I noticed, you know, as a college student and as a young guy who would attend a lot of left-wing events, it was remarkable to me the way uh, young people, when they would get up and speak, or, or activist progressives would get up and speak, um, they would testify. I believe we should live in a world where X doesn't come at the expense of Y. Um, you know, it was, a, it was very much a rejection of the concept of trade-offs, um, that all good things go together. The unity of goodness is real. And um, that sounds like religion to me, right? Like the first, the first, whether you're a left winger or a right winger, the first sign of, of serious thinking is that you have to acknowledge in terms of like public policy stuff, you have to acknowledge there are trade-offs. That if we're going to spend all our money on X, that means we can't spend all our money on Y. And um, I find that there is something deep in progressivism and particularly environmentalism, where every, every criticism of environmentalism is met with the charge of a false choice. Like you don't have to sacrifice any economic growth to put to divert all of this money from really efficient sources of energy to inefficient sources of energy because magic. And um, I think that that's it, that there's a, at some degree there is some of that religious instinct working its way in there. And maybe maybe you just call that wishful thinking, and the wishful thinking is a thing that is related to religion, but it's not actually religion. And I'd be open to that, but that's not that's just not how I see it. But I, I would sort of flip that and say that I, I agree with I agree with your point about trade-offs. I think rational, productive, secular thought relies on trade-offs, relies on appreciating. Well, this will be a good thing on the whole, but it's gonna it's gonna be bad in this way. So we gotta suck that up. The bad the good is worse than the bad. It's, sorry, it's better than the bad. But I think the people who think in terms of trade-offs, at least in the political and social realm, are actually a tiny minority. Everybody thinks in terms of absolute values and so on. Um, one day you're going to see a, a president saying something like, you know, a, I don't know, a presidential candidate saying, I want to shut the borders and keep immigrants out. You know, one, one downside of this policy is that it will damage jobs. Richard, but, you know, but on a balance, nobody talks that way. I think that, that basically what we see here is broader than religion, which is um, for both rhetorical reasons and a sort of psychology of purity. Positions tend to go to the absolute. I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter way too much, and people talk about like trans rights. And nobody, nobody ever says something like, I believe in this position, though I appreciate there are these problems with it. Only, only some rogue <laughs> economists talk that. Well, in my own defense, I have written about trans issues exactly that way. I have a lot of, I believe in treating individuals with respect, but I think that there are some macro problems with it all. Um, but uh, we can get to that in a bit. I mean, so uh, I'm pretty sure this is right. Let's, but maybe my memory is failing me, and that's something I want to get to is what we know about memory. But um, I'm pretty sure seeing data 10, 15 years ago at the height of the war on terror stuff that actually historically uh, suicide bombers um, or suicide, you know, kamikaze type missions, right, um, tended to be more. There were more of them among uh, nationalist, non-religious organizations, ter terrorist or militant organizations, than they were among religious. And when I hear that, I think, okay, well, so like nationalism is taking the part of religion in their brains, and um, um, and the because otherwise there's no. There's, I'm not saying that all smart decisions are rational decisions. I'm not saying that all good decisions are rational decisions. I'm just saying it is not inherently 
a rational decision to kill yourself for um, a greater cause um, um, unless there are other equities involved, right? So yeah. when you hear that, let's just stipulate that it's true, even if it, maybe I'm misremembering, that, you know, nationalist groups who want, you know, uh, who want Trieste returned to the Austro-Hungarian Empire and they're willing to kill themselves for it, um, would you, would, would psychologists generally see that sort of impulse as different than a religious impulse? Or, like, is nationalism the same thing as, as, as intense religiosity? Or are they just different things? It's an interesting issue in two ways. It speaks to sort of two separate debates. One thing is, um, what's the source of, of violence, religious violence, other violence in, in, of that mode? And there's been a lot of work suggesting that it's actually not the intensity of the religious belief. It's not, you know, a lot of the people who do immensely violent acts in the name of their religion aren't really religious. They're not like, like sat up on their, some of them are just religiously ignorant of, of their religion. The best predictor is how enmeshed they are in, 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 in the society of doing it. This is true for both good things and bad things. So um, Robert Putnam did some little classic work on this, uh, looking at, at the big finding is that in America, religious people are more likely to do good, more likely to donate, give to the homeless, give blood, and so on. But he then looked deeper and found out the aspects of religion that, that predict this are not how much you believe in God, do you believe in, in the resurrection of Christ and so on. It's rather how often you go to, to church or synagogue or mosque or whatever. You know, he points out that you, you find somebody goes to, to, to church daily, regularly, um, because, because uh, her husband goes and wants to be with him, um, is just as likely to do really, really good things in their life, um, more likely than someone who is a devout believer but doesn't attend much. So it seems to be in some of the social practice driving these things. On both. And it's the same study show of crew for suicide bombers. The second thing is there's sort of a deeper point about rationality, which I've always been interested in and will connect with some of your other interests, which is someone who's a suicide bomber, is that rational or irrational? As someone who does something, who does a violent act for their cause. I, I think rationality has a really sensible meaning, which we could discuss in terms of um, doing something that will best affect the goal. And so if, you, if, if it's raining outside, you don't want to get wet, the rational thing is to bring an umbrella. If you want to get wet, then it's stupid to bring an umbrella. You go there naked and dance in the rain. That's the, then that's the smart thing. And this shows up in all sorts of ways. And it shows up, I feel like I'm, I'm digressing here. I can't, I, I'm going to get here. But, uh, but it shows up in conspiracy theories. So I have a lot of friends who say, oh, my God, so many Americans believe conspiracy theories, QAnon and the like and everything. They're such morons. Their cognitive systems have gone awry. And I think that's exactly wrong. I think we have these powerful rational systems and we direct them towards different goals. Now, if your goal is to find the truth, then a lot of conspiracy theories are stupid. There's too much evidence against it. That's typically we're social animals. Our goal is often to get along. If all my neighbors think, I don't know, think, vaccines, COVID vaccines are a hoax from the government designed to put microchip. That's what all my neighbors believe. There's tremendous force for me as a rational agent to believe what my neighbors believe. If my goal is not to have somebody, you know, you know, throw, throw rocks through my windows, my goal is to be popular. And so I think a lot of what seems to be rational makes a lot more sense if we realize we're social, we're social beings. We want to get along. And, and so, and so, we, we often 
are what seems to be from the standpoint of truth stupid from the standpoint of getting along is smart so that's i mean that's really interesting i i i should note also just as a defender of america here uh against just just unprovoked canadian aggression um uh we've had joe ozinski and i may be butchering his last name i have a real mental block with it but uh he's a political scientist at university of miami really interesting guy who studies conspiracy theories and he'll point out that america is pretty typical when it comes to conspiracy theories i mean the french have got conspiracy theories like you wouldn't believe the argentinians are probably the worst um for interesting cultural reasons um but uh there's really no society out there that doesn't have uh uh, a, a, a considerable indulgence of conspiracy theories. One of the things they'll point to is that one of the most interesting things are the things that we decide to call conspiracy theories and the things that we decide not to. But that all that said, um, this wanting to belong thing, I think you make, that's a really good and important point um, insofar as it shows you how ideas can change very quickly when large groups of people go a certain direction. Um, and I want to sort of, so that's one of the things I, I kind of want to get into a little bit more is this us versus them thing. Um, I'm sure I asked you this before. I can't remember what your answer is, but first of all, like on a zero to 10, how much should weight should we give to evolutionary psychology? Um, we should give a 10 in that we should accept that our minds have evolved through natural selection that shapes, um, you know, how we think it shapes, how our perceptual system works, the foods we like, it shapes how we get along with people, shapes how the language we use. Um, it, it, it's, it's a truth that has enormous consequence for how the mind works. Now, accepting it as a 10, thinking this is totally true, doesn't mean that for everything we do, we have to say, oh, I wonder what the reproductive advantages of that are. Because some, because often, often evolutionary theory is, um, it, it might be true, but it doesn't really bear on any specific thing because uh, historical forces could play a role. Cultural forces could play a role. Right. I mean, people, people play video games and there's probably not a huge reproductive advantage to it. Yeah. The, you know, the, 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 there's so many examples. You know, a lot of men spend far more time with pornography than they do with actual uh, real live women. And this is not because their, their ancestors who were into porn produced more offspring than those who did. Um, it, these are these are video games, pornography, hot fart Sundays are technologies that clever humans have built to exploit evolved desires, and and now these evolved desires kind of go their own their own way. So the reason why I gave that a ten and not like a seven or six is that I think this is fully compatible with evolutionary theory, and um, that that some things exist, some things we do are adaptations, some things are accidents, some things are byproducts. So. So um, video games has a pretty good evolutionary explanation is that we've evolved an interest in things like war and battle. Um, and then uh, video games are inventions that, that, that tickle that desire in a case where it doesn't actually apply. Okay, so then the us versus them thing, which as, you, as you've noted a couple of times, I am a little obsessed with these days because I, I mean, and we, you know, we first met you were very kind when I spoke to the Yale Political Union. You said you followed me on Twitter. Let's grab a cigar at the Oak, or the Owl. I'm sorry, and um, uh, and so you know from a very early point that that 
I've struggled a great deal to explain what the hell happened to conservatism in America. And um, it is very difficult for me to understand any of it without getting into what, you know, John Tooby would call the coalition instinct. Um, this sort of, you know, the, the, there go the people, I must go with them for I am their leader kind of mindset that is everywhere. Um, uh, I don't think you're going to tell me that the us versus them thing isn't real, but like, where do you, how, how much explanatory value does it have? Um, and how should we think about it? I think we have to acknowledge that it's just a fundamental part of how we think that we are, we are at root tribal creatures. There are studies with, um, the sum of social psychology doesn't replicate and doesn't work, but here's what does. There are a lot of studies finding that, that as early as you could test people, they have their biases. Um, young kids prefer to, to take presents from, prefer to get food from people who speak the same language as they do. And biases for age and gender, but language bias is very powerful, presumably because language is a wonderful cue to tribal membership. Even if you speak with an accent, the kids don't like you. They, they're zooming and they, they want they want to talk to somebody who's from their their tribe. Um, you could establish us versus them on the smallest of things. There's some experiments where you you get kids to wear red t-shirts and blue t-shirts, and boom, the red t-shirt people think their group smarter, deserves more. They don't think much of the red t-shirt group. Been studied with flips of a coin. You flip head, I flip tail, and you know you say, isn't it funny how it worked out? But the head seemed to be just a better bunch of people than the tail flippers, and. You know, study after, and then you see it, you see it in the real world where, um, where you have the, this natural animosity towards other groups, which, which becomes, which is in some sense a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because, because if we start off with even the slightest bit of animosity, we'll, we'll form tribes. You will develop real grievances against my group. I will develop for yours. Your knowledge that I want your group to get less will lead you reasonably enough to suspect my policies and choices. And then you see this play out in the grandest social experiment of all, Twitter, where everyone is in, everyone's neatly in their side, throwing all sorts of vile hatred towards the other side, getting applauded, getting and everyone, you know, and many people are just kind of getting rich out of this in a social way. You know, all of a sudden I have a thousand people like my tweet where I dunk on somebody. He gets a thousand people for dunking on me. We're all happy, except for a few people get caught in the middle and have their lives destroyed. But but um, but the social dynamics of this, particularly for a, a complicated hot button issue, um, causes increasing polarization. And that actually goes back to what you said before, which is if you're in an if you're in in an in group out group battle, um, talking about constant benefits, whatever the cognitive benefits are, is kind of pretty taboo. Imagine it's World War II. You say, you know, Hitler. Hitler's a terrible guy. You know, except there's a couple of things about Hitler that were not so bad. Well, you know, that's not, it's not very good. No one's going to like me if I do that. I'm, I'm mildly in favor of the war in Iraq, but I recognize the cost and benefits. It doesn't, it, nobody, people dislike that because partisans on both sides recognize that you are not with the program. So I, I want to try out a theory on you, but first just to flesh this out a little bit. Um, so is the us versus them group tribal, whatever label we want to put on it? Um, and what, you, you'll let me know what the proper label is to put on it. Um, uh, cause I, I want to have all the right shibboleths when I go to the cool groups on campus. But, um, um, is it, is it a matter of, we're always going to pick a group to be in just sometimes we switch groups. 
or is i mean like again zero to ten how much of it is how how strong a driver is it for human behavior and i guess the only way to answer that question is compared to other drivers yeah yeah it, it's hard to rank to rank different drives um and i kind of know how i'd begin to say this but i'll say a couple of things it's the us versus them bias is, is shifts a lot culturally so we naturally categorize the world in all sorts of ways language age uh sex but race is a big one in many societies and that many people think this, this isn't exactly evolved because through much of of our history we never encountered people who you describe as different races we just all big extended families living together and it seems that there's an us versus them, which has almost sort of empty slots and you could fill in whatever you want. Red shirt, blue shirt, fine. Heads, tails, fine. Palestinian Jew, that'll work. Black, white, that'll work. And, um, and so culture tells us kind of who we are and who to hate. And of course, as you point, we, we belong to multiple groups. Our groups, our groups shift, but what people often miss out, particularly when talking about politics, and like, I'm gonna say something, I'm saying that the most informed man I know about these issues, so it's not gonna come surprise to you, but people say, oh my God, how did they all vote for Trump? Or, oh my God, why did they all vote, vote for, for Hillary? And any answer doesn't begin with, well, he was, he's Republican, she's Democrat, is missing 95% of the answer, which is once somebody's on your team, they're there, and then asking a million other questions is just is just besides the point. Yeah, of course, the irony, though, is that 50 years ago, that wouldn't be 95% of the answer. 50 years ago, if I asked you, are you a conservative or a liberal, I'd have to ask a follow-up question to find out if you were a Republican or a Democrat. But now partisanship maps like, I don't know, ethnicity, religion, you know, one of these core identity things in the way that it, they, that it didn't used to. That's right. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Steven Pinker, who argues that the world's been getting better in all sorts of ways. But you're pointing out one way in which the world has indisputably gotten worse, which is at least in the United States, elsewhere too, I think, is that a real change, not just, oh, this is the way it seems to me, the real change has been the polarization of, of American politics, where now you ask people of one party, would you want you know, your son or daughter marry somebody in another party to say, hell no. And it used and it used to be far more flexible and far more amorphous. Um, all right, so this is the theory I want to try on you, in part just because I just gave a, a talk about it um, at an AEI event. Um, I, I've been reading um, Rene Girard, uh, and I I have not decided whether or not this is uh, like reading the Kabbalah, and I'm going to go nuts reading this stuff. Um, but I like a lot of it so far, um, and. At least I'm getting something out of a lot of it so far. And, um, you know, one of the points he makes, which I think is a very good one, is that uh, the more egalitarian a society gets, um, the um, more the divisions will have less to do with economics and more to do with status symbols, right? Which I, I recently learned Eric Fromm coined the term status symbols, so I'm not allowed to use it anymore. But, um, uh, and, you know, he starts with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel had, you know, similar economic plights, but one was more favored by God than the other, and that's all, that's all she wrote. Um, and anyway, in the talk I gave, I tied it to um, 
this guy, I um, uh, can't remember his first name, Hirsch, who was an Austrian-born British economist who came up with the concept of positional goods. You know, positional goods are a little different than, than Veblen goods. Veblen goods is just about money, right? The more expensive something gets, the more demand goes up for it. That's what conspicuous consumption and all that is about. Um, positional good is really, um, it's about, it, it can be a Veblen good, but it can also be about sort of social scarcity. Like uh, there can be only one handsomest guy in high school. And there's, there's value to that that is not economically quantifiable. Um, but there are also things that are in the realm of the social order about um, that may have some economic component to them, but really are just sort of social cues that convey status. And anyway, so I have this part of my theory is, is that um, the richer and more prosperous Western countries get, the more we're going to have culture wars because they are um, the only sources of, of, of status differentiation left. And so, I mean, just to give you an example. I don't, I, I know a lot of billionaires. They have better houses than I do, obviously. They um, have marginally better cars than I do, but like the car, the, bet, the superiority of their cars has to do with Veblen consumption. It's just the status symbol that they spent an extra $200,000 on a car. It doesn't do anything that my car can't do, right? And their phones are the exact same phones I have, right? And their TVs are the exact same TVs I have. And I probably eat better than they do. But the, 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 the real inequality comes from status rather than actual material goods in a way that 150 years ago, the quality of life between a rich person and a poor person was really different, or even 50 years ago. And, and so anyway, I think that, that we are destined to have more of the culture wars come from a contest of all the talk of income inequality is really about status inequality or a lot of it is. What do you think about all that? I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I, there, there's in some way you're, you're thinking of the in-group out-group thing on analogy to religious urge, where if you take away organized religions, it will, it will spring up elsewhere. And in this case, if you take away, you're not in a war. Your every, there's a fundamental economic egalitarian nature. We have to find something to fight about. We have to find some way to differentiate, differentiate each other. Um, and I think there's a couple of things. There's, there's one thing has a very weird finding that is going to connect on sex differences. So there's various sex differences around the world. Some of them are totally bogus. Some of them are real and reliable. The real reliable one is that males tend to be more aggressive than women on average. You know, sometimes there are always exceptions, bell curve sort of thing, but, but, and women tend to be more nurturing also on average. The surprising finding is that it's the countries which are most egalitarian, Norway, Sweden, and so on, where those effects are the biggest. And the idea is that these, these countries are relatively free. People can, people are not as constrained. So they could lit whatever their natural proclivity, proclivities are to cut loose. Just like the basic finding in genetics, which is that in behavioral genetics, which is that that in a rich, prosperous society, genetic differences show up the most. Because you know, if you're if you're in in, uh, in North Korea, you you don't get a chance to show off if you're good at math. You don't get a chance to to, to be a great athlete if you're if you're not you know a privileged person and so on. Really smart serfs and really dumb serfs live pretty similar lives. That's right. That's right. So and and. In, in prosperity, 
if if you and I, if you have the genes to be a math genius in a prosperity, you will get to show that. While in another society, you might just be sent to the slave camps and there's nothing much you could do about it. So, so there's more of a flourishing of other things in egalitarian societies, and probably more of a, of a flourishing of status battles and um and 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 conflicts of the sort you're talking about. This could also be in part because once you get rid of the sort of low-hanging fruit of of very like I'm starving to death, you know, there are slaves around, then we then we focus on other things and other moral issues, which which rise in importance. And I might get very upset by what you call me. I get very upset about about sort of things that we wouldn't have time to fight about in another era. This is, by the way, why I don't believe in utopia like some of my my friends do, which is that that suppose we're, we all have but we're in a Star Trek universe, which is my favorite universe to live in, where a replicator is giving us food and everything. But still, still, your podcast is so successful. I don't even have have a podcast like that. Still, you know, I'm 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 married to, to Melba, and you wanted to be married to her. There's there there's always going to be things for us to be miserable about. And also, we're always going to have things where you know, like I mean, again. I, it, there's a real bringing coals to Newcastle thing talking about psychological findings talk with you, but uh, no, but there's, a, there are all these studies that show that it's, it's not so much that people want to be rich or have life satisfaction from being rich. They get the real satisfaction from being richer than other people, right? We are naturally sort of comparative people. We compare ourselves to others and um, that doesn't go away. Like my, I remember when I was a little kid, my dad would tell me there is nothing in economics that says, we couldn't live in a society where everyone is a millionaire. Now that doesn't mean that somebody won't be worth a hundred million and one person will only be worth a million, but like, and so you're still going to have this subjective definition of poverty that says the millionaires are poor and the centimillionaires are middle-class or whatever. Um, it, it speaks to a puzzle you get, which is it's not surprising the more money you make, the happier you are. You know, money buys things that makes one happy, but there's some studies finding that the, the very rich, the people who have more than $10 million are happier than the merely millionaires. And, and it's kind of a puzzle because there's not that actually that much more you could buy that would affect your life. And in fact, at a certain point of wealth, issues come up that might make your life tangibly worse. Worries about security, for instance. Worries about people just constantly asking you for money, which could be a real pain. That's right. And I've heard the same thing said about fame, where you know, there's a certain optimal level of fame where you get good tables and people, you know, people wave to you cheerfully on the street. And then there's, you can't leave the house fame and you're worried about your kids being kidnapped fame. But so the question is, why are people, why are the multimillionaires happier? And I think the answer is because they look at everybody else and they say, Hey, I'm on the top. And so status matters a lot. So on, um, uh, one last point on this and then we'll move on. So you you mentioned how like, Video games and ice cream sundays are technology that sort of uh, trick our evolved responses in 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 real ways. I think that one of part of my theory is that we now have an economy of um, status envy, status anger um, that tricks us that way, right? So, like uh, Fox News is like a giant. Chinese fishing trawler just putting out the gill nets, trying to find the latest thing to make its audience angry about, right? And I think you can make a very similar charge about MSNBC. Um, and Twitter is the is the crowdsourcing of what Julian Benda would call the organization of political hatreds. And um, 
I don't know as a, as someone who's generally a laissez-faire guy, um, I really struggle about what to do about it. I am very much on Jonathan Haidt's side on a lot of the specific complaints. I just don't know about the solutions yet. If, if you could be, you know, czar for a day and impose some humane regulations on how we would organize this sort of grievance industrial complex, what would you do? So I think I share your politics on this, which I'm very skeptical about legislation. I know John is less skeptical. He thinks, for instance, I, this may be oversimplification. If you simply took away the retweet button and the like buttons, which, which is an interesting fix because it doesn't really, in some way, block certain forms of speech. It rather blocks sort of something which is viewpoint neutral. So maybe, in the, you know, First Amendment safe in a way. It'll make the world better. I'm, I don't like having regulations block these things and handle these things. The one exception I have, which is what I think I do agree with, with John, is I think we need to work harder on um, safeguarding these things from kids. So, you know, you and I, when we go into the swamps of Twitter and, you know, get our daily drubbing and humiliate other people and go to work, well, we chose to. And, and, and I think there's externalities where we are participating in a process that is making the world so much worse. But still, you got to give a lot of weight to the fact we should be allowed to do what we, what we do. For a 13-year-old, less so. All right, well, we're not going to solve that, and I want to get into other things that we... Um, uh, we'll solve. Uh, well, that will help us sort of understand why everyone, everyone out there should get your book. Um, so uh, what the hell do we know about memory? Ah, we know a lot about memory. Um, memory is one of the success stories of psychology. And, and what we know is that one of the things we know is that, that most people have it wrong. A lot of people have a sense of memory that it's like you're holding up your iPhone all day and set to video and it's video right in your head. And you, in your head just contains video recordings of, of, of event after event after event. Now, a lot of them are hard to find. You forget things, but sometimes you know things for sure. You bring back, I know where I was when a plane hit on 9-11. I know where I was when I proposed to my wife. And those are clear. Other things, maybe a hypnotist could get out of you or, or, or a kind therapist who just asked you the right question and it'll come flooding back. And the finding from psychology is all of that's utterly, utterly wrong. Um, much of what we experience is never recorded in memory. Much of the rest is quickly lost. The rest exists in kind of a fragmentary form. And when we bring it to mind, as if you're telling me a story as if I asked you, and I'm sure you're going to know, where, where were you when, um, when this happened? You will tell me a good story, but you're just storytelling. You're building from the fragments and, and doing storytelling. And we know that from a few different ways. One way we know that is when you actually test people's memories, when you compare them to the tape, for instance, um, they're grossly wrong. They're grossly comically wrong. There have been cases where, extreme cases, where people have confessed to crimes that they haven't even been in the right country for, but they somehow talk themselves into it. But there's also a lot more milder cases. I tell in the book a story of being being at a party, telling a very funny story of what happened to me. And we're driving home. And my wife, who was very nice not to say this at the party, said, you know, that happened to me, not you. <laughs> and because I heard the story, I kind of got, it got in my head. Um, psychologists like Elizabeth Loftus, who's done a lot of work, can implant false memories in your head. Some of it's sort of subtle, like you know, I just show you a scene and then I ask you in a scene, how fast was the school bus going? He said, I don't really remember. Then a week later, I bring you in and I said, what was in the scene? He said, well, school bus. 
And you remember it because my question set the seed for it. Then there's heavy duty stuff where, where through repeated questioning, you get people to believe that they, they had something happen to them which didn't happen at all. And I think this is interesting. And it's just interesting how our memories work. I think it has an important grasp of humility when you're arguing with your loved one over what happened. You have to really appreciate you were both almost certainly wrong. And, and I have had parts of my life where I went back to the tape and where there was literally a tape and I was shocked how wrong I was. And also some forgiveness towards other people. There was something a while ago, you, I know you may remember this, when, when Hillary Clinton had a memory, described some events she was, we were under a heavy fire. I forget where she was. And people mocked her. And she said, oh, she has dementia. She's a psychopathic liar and everything. I think that's how memory works. Any memory from two years ago, you're always going to add, I was under heavy fire. I mean, it's just, it's just the kind of you know, distortion that happens. So our memories are far less reliable. And this is actually something, a case of psychology, which has made a difference in that the procedures for eyewitness testimony have changed a lot. Um, we, know, we, know, we now realize when somebody points and says, that's the man who did it with total certainty, that that does not mean the person is right. Um, let's pull apart some of that. I, I, I am less um, forgiving of, of, say, Hillary Clinton's memory of this because there were other people who were with her and presumably she could have said, do you remember it this way? All that kind of stuff. She's running for president of the United States. It, to me, it's just, a, it's a different kind of thing. It's sort of like all the, it's, 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 a, it's not quite like some of Trump's inventions from the past. Cause those are just straight up lies. Um, but, um, yeah. there's a lot, I mean, like, would you be forgiving of people who, um, you know, these stolen valor cases, like the politicians who say that they served in Vietnam and didn't, I mean, like that can't just be bad memory, right? I mean, some of it is this thing that a psychologist have put a little work in called lying, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of lying. Um, uh, I, it would, I would be open to the, if plainly if it's lying, it's, it's, it's wretched or, and you know, Trump may be his own special case where he's the, the sort of perfect example of, of, you know, what Henry Frankfurt described as bullshit, which is, I'm not sure he even lies. He just, um, he just, he has, is an indifference to the truth, which, which wouldn't graduate to lying. I just want, I, I would just think that sometimes people will tell stories where they are, I've never met a stolen valor case. I have met cases where people tell me these stories where they are hero of the story they 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 told the other guy what for and everything and i don't believe a word of it but i don't think what a psychopath i think i think this is he's just giving voice to, to the way the mind the mind works a healthy mind makes you the hero of every of every story i am really at a point where somebody just at a party you're talking to me and says man a few years ago this happened let me tell you and i'm just saying i'm going to hear a nice story i do not expect any of it to be true interesting so I am totally open and, and, and persuaded by the false eyewitness stuff. I've read enough about that. I, I think that's all right. But like, um, and I'm totally bought in that a lot of people embellish and then over time, the embellishments become not just a difference of degree, but ultimately a difference of kind. I, I, I get all of that, but, um, there are some events that happen to us that we actually remember right i mean it can't it can't all be just um a convenient fiction about our own past no experience leaves traces and we do have we do have 
memories. Um, you see somebody and say, hey, we got last got together. You know, we, we, you see me and you say, oh, we, we invested a podcast. We, we met at the Owl Shop. And you were right. Um, I think the problems come when we try to make more of it. When I ask you, where did we sit? Now, I actually have a sense of where we sat. I could bring back an image of where we sat. You sat with your back. Your back was to the cigar cases because I pointed and get. And, and so, but to, if there was a video there, I'm, I have enough of that. That's probably just, just false. I'm just trying to make too much of this. No, true story. My wife, I, pro, I, I proposed to my wife in the tea room at the Park Lane Hotel in London. And then when we went back five years, six years later, we had a huge argument about where in the room we were when I asked her. And of course she was wrong, <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, which I will, I will, I will deny I said that. Oh, all memory yeah. stories have to end that way. First, just a factual question. Um, uh, I'll tell it as a story. So when my, when my, um, my brother passed away, he's buried in a, he's, he's, uh, in a mausoleum, a Jewish mausoleum at a Jewish cemetery. And we had this rabbi come to, you know, do rabbi things. And my, uh, my sister-in-law, um, um, who was Haitian, um, or Haitian American, um, her family came obviously, and they all brought flowers and they didn't know that you sh don't bring flowers to a Jewish funeral. And the rabbi was adorable about it. And he said, um, he said, sort of like straight out of a character of like Seinfeld, he just says, you know, that used to be our thing. Um, but then the Christians started doing it, so we had to go a different way. And so we started doing this whole rocks on the tombstone thing. And it was really interesting. And for all I know, it's historically accurate, right? Um, the factual question I have is, is, what is this phenomenon that, what would a psychologist or a sociologist call this phenomenon of sort of oppositional disorder where if tribe, if the Crips do wear red, we have to wear blue. We have to do the opposite of what they're doing. You know, that might bring you to, to back to Rene Girard. I know, so I'm kind of steering you in this direction. So. <laughs> yeah, so I've never been steered towards <laughs> Rene Girard. So this is a new thing. But so Girard says, says, and everything I know, by the way, is from a long Twitter stream about him. So this is not exactly high scholarship. But, but the boring he, thing he said, or ever says, is you want to be like the cool people. But um, but the more interesting thing he says is that it's an even stronger desire not to be like the uncool people. And you translate that into in-group, out-group, and then you get this oppositional thing, which is we're not going to do what the Christians do. We're going we're gonna to oppose ourselves to them. Right. So what, I, what I'm trying to get at, though, is I've been thinking about, about, a lot about this lately because I actually planned on giving a different talk, and then I ended up going this way with the positional good stuff. The thing I'm kind of persuaded by, to a certain extent, by Gerard and by some other stuff that I've been reading lately, is that identity is kind of bullshit. Um, and what I mean by that is um, a lot of people embrace a concept of identity as a way to signal that they are not part of another group. And so identity and so what, what he would call the romantic lie about authenticity is really this oppositional thing. Um, you know, the, the, the Rousseauian idea of authenticity really is a way of saying, I'm not with these elites. I'm not with these rulers. I, I define myself in the opposite terms. And the, the thing that I'm sort of struggling to get at is, is that if you define yourself as the opposite of the people you hate or have chosen to hate, you are still letting them define you. 
right? You're still saying in these categories, okay, they, if they all say X, I'm going to say not X. You're still letting this, the status of X thing define who you are. Um, and uh, this, I, this idea of real authenticity, um, where you have these authentic choices, seems to me to be much more tenuous than people think. And in fact, the whole weird thing about authenticity, choice, and identity is they're all at odds with each other, right? I mean, like, if you think about identity politics is there's this essential nature to being black or white or gay or straight, and then you talk about how you identify as this or you make these choices. Well, if there's an essential nature to it, you shouldn't be able to make the choice. But of course, you can make the choice because human beings are much more malleable. How, you know, how do you think about concepts like authenticity, choice, identity? Um, do they do they have a role in psychiatry, psychology, or are these things that um, are sort of outside the the scope of what we know or are even interested in in the field? So, identity plainly has a role in psychology as part and parcel of how we sort ourselves up and sort ourselves into groups, and in how we choose we choose how to act. You know, in a million ways, the way I I live my life is shaped by what people in my in my in my i in my orbit do in really subtle ways like you know do you hold open a door do you say thank you do you say ma'am or sir and 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 we, we do this unconsciously how how you how you hold yourself is in a million ways shaped by people around you authenticity i find a complicated notion to get my my head around because you're right it's opposed to that it's it's and if, if if i if i wear what i wear because that's what everybody around me wears. That's not very authentic. But if I wear what I wear because I don't want to dress like those guys, that's also not very authentic. I am I am being manipulated by them um, exactly to the extent I'm being manipulated by by my own people. Um, and in fact, they don't have my interests in mind, so it's even more embarrassing. And you see this, of course, in the political realm, where often people reflexively take the opposite position of whatever their enemy does. Um, almost in sort of, a, and, and often get kind of clowned around around that way. Um, I do. So it's funny you should you should ask about this. This is, uh, but but my next project is I'm becoming very interested in perverse actions. And perverse actions are actions you do just because they're wrong. The the classic case is Saint Augustine goes into a, an orchard with friends and they steal some pears, and they're not even hungry. They throw them to the pigs. He had nothing against the owner of the orchard. He says, why in the world did I do this? And this isn't a confession. So he says, I'm going to tell you all about my sexual debauchery. But he, but he basically says, my sexual debauchery was boring. I just did that because I like sex. The pears drive me nuts. And, and, and his claim in end was, I want it to be bad. He said, why would I want to be bad? And I think there's different answers to this. But one answer is, alongside our affiliative group-based natures, we want to be authentic, or I think a better term is we want to be autonomous. You might reason that if you do everything you're supposed to, everything moral and rational and, and, and appropriate you do so, that you, you, that, that you do everything that way, what use are you? What use is your consciousness? You could be replaced by a suitably programmed chat GPT that just responds to your environment. And I think sometimes that chafes against us. And then if you're two years old, all of a sudden, you throw the plate of peas into your father's face. Or, or if you're a teenager, 
all of a sudden, you know, you you, you spray a giant heart on the school's building, or if you're a middle-aged man, you know, you 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 buy um, a Tesla that you can't afford. So I'm interested in this sort of rebellion that rebels against this sort of Girardian trap. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, in fairness to Nietzsche and Freud, he gets a lot of this stuff from other places. Um, I'm not trying to denigrate him. I, I haven't made up my mind about him is all, but like. You know, in the, in the genealogy of morals, which I wrote about a bit in, in my last book, there's the, you know, there's Nietzsche's, and I'm, I'm not endorsing it, I'm just describing it. There's Nietzsche's theory of uh, Christianity, where they basically, you know, the Christians basically take through resentment the the highest ideals and turn them into vices, right? So it used to be strength and power and will and and courage, and now it's meekness and turn the other cheek, and and it, so. Um, and the Nietzschean argument, which is one that, uh, Schumpeter and others picked up is like, there are always these groups who try to take, to seize power, cult, status power, cultural power by taking the concepts that are considered the best and saying, no, they're actually the worst, right? That's what Rousseau does with the whole civilization is, is slavery thing, um, is do you think, I mean, I promise we'll get off this in a second. It's just, I'm really interested in it. Uh, is this primarily a subject of sociology or of psychology, do you think? Is this a individual human impulse or is this part of the realm of fads and social contagion? My default answer is there's always psychology. But, but the psychologist asks why we want to do that. The psychologist both asks why when somebody says, uh, you know, piety, let's throw it out the window. Why would they want to do that? Piety or meritocracy or whatever, the other thing, let's throw it out the window. Why they do that and why others, what resonates with other people doing this. Sociology says, why does it happen in 2020 as a, and more so than in 1940 or whatever? Sociology deals at the broad levels. I think there's a fundamental compatibility. Um, E.O. Wilson talks about consilience, the idea of the sciences nestling together. You know, chemistry has a bit of biology, psychology has a bit of neuroscience. But consilience works all the way up. You don't want a sociological theory that doesn't mesh with the way minds work. And you don't want a psychological theory that, that's incompatible with sociological discoveries. It's why the best work is to some extent, if not multidisciplinary, at least keeps an eye out towards other disciplines. Um. Okay, so in the little, very little time we have left, one of the things I like to ask, and this is perfect about it since you just wrote a, basically a book on what we know and don't know. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask people in specific fields is, what are the issues that are most likely to elicit really nasty arguments among practitioners of that field? Like, what are the things that divide you guys and like, you might say when someone brings it up at dinner, you might say later, why did you even bring that up? We were having such a nice dinner. So you could be asking one of two questions. What are the sort of questions that, um, that is gonna get you yelled at at a family dinner or yelled at over, over Twitter? And I think you know the answer to those questions. It's trans issues, it's, it's race issues, it's stuff like that. The cooler version of the question is, um, is what do we argue about sort of, you know, in, in sort of when, when, when the kids are put to bed and, and we're, we're amongst ourselves and what do we, what do we fight about? And I think the, the, the I think it's this, 
And it's, an, it's over something which troubled me a lot and troubles a lot of people. There's a huge debate in psychology about how the mind works in general, where one side says, and this is since, since Hume, since Locke, that we're basically statistical machines. We just accumulate associations about the world. And this has gotten fire in the computer science community and comes under deep learning. And we just, we just make generalizations. We're prediction machines. And this is, of course, the architecture behind things like chat GPT and the AI, which is ultimately going to kill us all. Another school of thought identified people like Alan Turing, Jerry Fodor, Noam Chomsky, um, Leibniz, sees our brains as logical computational machines that do rational thought, capable of rational, capable of logic and reasoning. And there's a lot of people in the field who say the answer is both. And I think it's both. Steve Pinker argued it's both. Gary Marcus, who's a critic of AI, argues it's both. But now the fighting over this has become at a fever pitch because many of us, including, including me, who would have never thought these machines could be so powerful, are now worried. And we're worried in all sorts of ways. But one way, one way we're worried is, does this show that we really are just statistical machines? So, and the key argument is there are people like me, people like Gary Marcus, who say there's going to be certain things these machines cannot do, certain interesting cognitive things these machines can't do. And the whole field is waiting to see whether that turns out to be right or wrong. Let's say we're, that we are the statistical machines. Um, uh, and that not chat GTP 1.0, 2 .0, 3 .0, but maybe 47.0 really does more processes than our neurons do and is just all these kinds of things, right? Would the people who think we're just statistical machines think that that would start generating things like emotional states or are emotional states exterior to the other things that make up consciousness? It's a good question. It, it's, um, if you were live, we were living time in Rene Descartes, we could assert with confidence, no physical machine, no physical thing could be smart. Well, you know, it, it was reasonable at the time. It's not reasonable now. These machines, they can play chess, they have conversations, they do poetry, they do, they're very smart. Now the next level up is, can they be conscious? Can they be sentient? Can they, can they experience pain and pleasure? And the stakes are, are in some way tremendously high. Right now, it's sort of, it's a little bit of a laugh line. And when some guy at uh, Google, uh, Blake Lamoni, I think, argued that uh, a machine was being enslaved by Google and should be released because it's sentient. You can't have a sentient people as well. People laughed at him. There's a lot of ridicule. But I'm not sure it'll be laughing five years from now. And but the problem is this. Suppose you have on your on your your computer in front of you something that you have been having conversations with for a year and it shows every signs of being a person. It is indistinguishable from a person. You develop a bond to it as you would with a person. Does it have rights? It's science fiction stuff. It's science fiction stuff. I think we used to think, oh, we're going to get you in a thousand years. It's science fiction stuff that before you and I, while you and I are still on Earth, we're going to struggle with. What if it's no longer on in a computer, but in a robot body? And so I think in some way, the guy at Google was the canary in the coal mine. He was the first guy to say, to say oh, I, is it conscious? If so, I'm really worried. Pretty soon, a lot of people are going to be doing that. But the problem is we don't know how to tell. I know how to tell whether something's smart. I just see how well it does on tasks that require smartness. How can I tell 
when it begs me and says, don't, don't turn me off. I don't want to die. Or as happened, I think last month, it goes to some report, tech reporter and says, you know, your wife doesn't love you. You know, you know, I love you. You think your wife loves you. She finds you boring. I don't find you boring. Is there something going on there? Or is just random script shooting up? I'm more interested in what this analogy to human brain says about the human brain than what it says about ChatGPT. Because I agree with you entirely that these are these are really heady, weighty questions that we're not going to get answers to right now, but we're going to need to think about a lot. But when you said, "Can a machine feel pleasure and pain and whatnot?" the statistical association model of the brain one of two of the really big variables about feeling pleasure and pain um have to do with hormones and nerve endings neither of which computers have would a brain you know independent like if it was if you could feed information to someone in a complete coma who was numb from the forehead down um what would the concepts of pleasure and pain mean to, to an intelligence like that? I mean, I, I, I just don't, why would you program a computer to feel pleasure and pain if, 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 if you didn't need to, you know, and like, but a brain, clearly pleasure and pain are part of the equation for, for, for a human brain. So even absolutely, it's true, you may need a body to get pleasure and pain. And if we deprive these things of bodies, they won't have them. But there's other things. So just being a brain, in a vat, separate from everything else, you could feel guilt, shame, gratitude, embarrassment, pride. You feel that, and there's there's a way that it is to feel that. If if I start if I start worrying about the death of my children, I can feel sad. Um, if I think of something somebody something somebody nice did did for me, I feel a certain feeling of gratitude. So that's accessible to these to these statistical engines to these brains in a vat, to these, these uh, AIs. But do they feel those things? Some people think that just as with what you said about pleasure and pain, you need flesh to do it. It only comes out if you have brains, if you have some you know, smelly meat that's been pumping away through this. And the cold computer just analyzing data, that's not sufficient to give rise to feelings. Feelings are fundamentally a material matter. I think part of the problem always, as I mentioned this before, is it's not just that we don't know. We don't know what could tell us. I mean, I don't know. You feel pain. You tell me you feel pain. I, it's a reasonable guess. You look like me. I feel pain. Da, da, da. But every teenager at some point in his life wonders, is everyone else a robot pretending to do these things? And I'm the only person alive. You know, we give up that. But we, there's, we, don't, have a, we don't have a consciousness detector with the wave on things. Yeah. I mean, Obviously, it's, a, it's above my pay grade, and it's a really rich topic. But I just I have a hard time, like feeling sad about your children dying, um, feeling sad that you weren't invited to a party. Uh, these kinds of emotional states, you know, you're the one who said evolutionary psychology is a, is a ten, right? There's a lot of instinctual subroutines that are built in that I don't think you know, like. What moron out there is programming a AI machine to feel excluded from the party on Saturday night, right? I mean, like, don't do that. <laughs> um, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't tell the AI you're not sexy, right? Um, that just seems like fraught with peril. So, so um, as you know, the don't do that is not having much of a play on people working on AIs. I think they, they very much want AIs 
to to what extent think get upset that they weren't invited to the party get upset that um that they're not voted the best ai in the world under the hopes that if you include those things which make us human these ais themselves become more human and for many people that's what the goal is what could go wrong you can't <laughs> what could, that's that's right what what could go wrong Okay, I mean, I, I, I really could go on for a while with this. I love this. I, I, I may have you back before your next book so we can just sort of do this 2.0. Um, I love it. But uh, um, I am always edified and grateful when you come on. And um, I will, uh, and I'd love to have you back. Same, same here. Always fun talking to you. Okay, so uh, uh, Paul Bloom has left the studio. I will be honest. I think you'll probably pick up on it. I were, if, 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 I thought he would have been game and didn't feel exploited. I probably would have gone another hour. Um, I find this stuff really interesting. Um, it's it's particularly useful on this book that he's actually written a book trying to, with great humility um, and, um, and, and objectivity, uh, actually just describe what the whole field of psychology is good or bad at. And I know I'm going to get people saying, why didn't you ask this or why didn't you ask that? I had these plans about asking some stuff about Freud and the differences about whether talk therapy works anymore, which is why I want to have him back. Um, and, um, and I'm sincere about this. Uh, his books are all great. I, I, and I haven't read anything but a little bit of, of the latest, this book, Psych, um, which I will read you the full title of. Uh, Psych, the story of the human mind, um, which I believe was based on a... Um, course that he taught a survey course that he taught at Yale. Um, and, uh, so other than that, um, uh, lots of stuff been going on in the dispatch. You might've picked up from it. I can talk more about it. Um, on the solo pod at the end of the week when things are even a little less, uh, where, when things are clearer. Um, and, uh, that's all I got, um, for today. Um, again, the, um, the switch, to um spotify is unfolding and um you should let us know if there are any if you run into any new issues or if any of your old issues have been satisfied or fixed in any way um and um again if you are a uh um someone who wants to reach our specific audience by advertising directly on the dispatch uh you should reach out just uh, drop a line to sales at the dispatch.com. Um, um, you don't have to, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to go through some big vendor who puts you out on a whole bunch of podcasts that you don't really care about, but you want to go, um, straight to the juggler of the, um, American decision-making complex, uh, then dispatch podcasts are a great place to advertise. So with that, uh, I want to thank everybody else, everybody for listening and especially, I'm Paul Bloom, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>